Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how competing lawsuits over one of the medications typically used in abortions could play out. And we take a moment to celebrate Arizona Citrus with Chef Charlene Badman. But first, a certain Chinese spy balloon has been capturing a lot of attention of late after the U.S. government shot down a high-altitude balloon sent by the Chinese government off the coast of South Carolina earlier this month. It had been spotted near nuclear missile sites. Now, an Arizona company co-founded by Senator and former astronaut Mark Kelly is in the spotlight, too, because of its ties to China. Tucson-based Worldview manufactures and operates high-altitude surveillance balloons and, as recently as seven years ago, received funding from Chinese investors with ties to the Communist Party. It's a tangled web of interest that our next guest is here to untangle for us. Jessica Baim is a reporter for Axios Phoenix and has been covering this story, and she joins us now. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, you guys. So begin with a little bit more about this company, Worldview, and its ties to China. Tell us more about this. Absolutely. So Worldview, which is based down in Tucson, uh, as you mentioned, they they manufacture and deploy these high-altitude balloons for a whole number of reasons. Um, Back in 2013 and 2016, when the company was getting off the ground, um, some of the initial venture capital came from a company called Tencent, which is actually one of the largest Chinese uh, internet companies, Chinese tech companies. And that company, like all tech companies in China, you know, is inextricably linked to the Chinese Communist Party. So this was seven years ago, and the company is a little different now. It does something a little different than when those investments were made, right? That's right. When the company was first started, uh, the, the main idea was that these these balloons, which it, it's hard to explain unless you see them, it's almost like they're huge, uh, yeah, like a, yeah, like a giant hot air balloon. Um, they were supposed to be taking people up into space for tourism purposes, um, and that is still something that the company is working on, um, but. What they mostly do now is provide these types of balloons for surveillance, intelligence purposes, kind of, I guess we could say spy balloon purposes, as that's the term we're using these days, mm-hmm. um, for our government. Um, and so that's where things get a little tricky with um, the the situation that happened earlier this month uh, with the Chinese government sending a, a similar type of device into U.S. airspace. Right. Things get a little tricky. Dig into that a little bit for, more for us. What are some of the questions at hand here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, both Tencent and Worldview claim that there there's not information sharing happening. There never was. Um, and you know, there's no reason to believe that, that that did occur. But, you know, some of the defense and national security experts I've talked to you said that, you know, this this situation with uh, the balloon earlier this month gives us kind of this renewed opportunity to look at Chinese investment, of which there is a lot in American companies, yeah. including companies that are sensitive and critical like this one. And perhaps it's time for us, uh, for the federal government to, uh, to go back and review some of those investments and make sure that there's uh, really strong um, firewalls in place and that there's not any, you know, 
unintentional information sharing going on, mm-hmm. not only with this company, but as I said, the many, many companies that receive Chinese investment in the United States. So Jessica, tell us more about the relationship here with Senator Mark Kelly um, and, and how that's coming into question now as well. Absolutely. So now Senator Kelly, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago was not a senator and he uh, was one of the co-founders of this company and he uh, has described his role as mostly providing kind of the the aerospace uh, pilot uh, uh, advice. Uh, As you mentioned, he was an astronaut, so this is kind of in his wheelhouse. Mm Um, and so that was his role. He, he has left the company uh, before he ran for Senate. He he parted from the company. But one thing that was interesting to me, we were able to translate from a Chinese language uh, news organization that the former CEO said that uh, Senator Kelly or now Senator Kelly, then uh, co-founder Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, met with one of the heads of Tencent USA, this Chinese company, um, and kind of introduced the idea of space travel uh, to him. And after that conversation, uh, Tencent was uh, willing to or interested in investing. Hmm. What has Senator Kelly now said about about that call, about that meeting? You know, he maintains that if he had a conversation with anyone from Tencent, it was 30 seconds to one minute long, um, a very brief conversation. Uh, today, when I kind of, when I reached out and asked, you know, just for some clarity of, you know, are there concerns here now in retrospect all these years later and, and China's sending these balloons over, uh, the com- the uh, comment I got from his office was that, uh, you know, that Worldview is an Arizona company that is helping the federal government and, and he's proud of that. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Jessica Baim, a reporter for Axios Phoenix, with more on this story. Jessica, thanks for your reporting on this. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. A federal judge in Texas is expected to rule shortly in a lawsuit that aims to block access to one of the two drugs typically used in medication abortions. Plaintiffs in the case are seeking a nationwide injunction, meaning the drug would become unavailable across the country. At the same time, Arizona has joined a multi-state lawsuit that argues the FDA is too restrictive when it comes to that drug and that it should be more available nationwide. Joining me to talk about how these two competing lawsuits may play out is Barbara Atwood with the James E. Rogers College of Law at the University of Arizona. And Barbara, let's start with the Texas case. How significant do you think this ruling will be? Uh, It will be extremely significant if he grants uh, the remedy that the plaintiffs are seeking, which is a nationwide injunction against the dispensing of mifepristone, the first of two medications that are used for medication abortion. Uh, It would be, you know, it would simply ban uh, that drug from essentially the marketplace. Uh, And as you probably know, the use of uh, abortion medication is constantly increasing and accounted for more than 50% of abortions in the United States in the most recent um, assessment of methods of abortion. Would you assume that whichever side loses this case will appeal it? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, the other lawsuit that you're referring to, of course, is the suit that was 
filed just a couple of days ago in uh, the state of Washington in a federal court. And that suit is brought by 12 states, including the state of Arizona. The suit in Texas is brought by a group of physicians and conservative religious groups that are anti-abortion. But the the suit in, in the um, federal court in Washington is seeking, you might say, the exact opposite of what the suit in Texas is seeking. The, the plaintiffs in uh, the Washington lawsuit are wanting to get the FDA to remove its remaining restrictions on the prescribing of mifepristone. And they say it's unwarranted and that they, they have negative effects both for the people seeking the abortion and for the pharmacies who, that have to go through a certification process. So they're on the one hand up in the Northwest in Washington, you've got a lawsuit wanting to lift through the remaining restrictions. And in Texas, you have a lawsuit wanting to close down the ability of uh, doctors to prescribe mifepristone in the first place. We've got two competing lawsuits. Uh, there will be an appeal no matter what. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because to a non-lawyer reading through these, it looked as though these two suits were directly at odds with each other. And it sounds like what you're saying is they are. They absolutely are. And just removing it from the abortion context, there's a lot of controversy in the United States among lawyers and legal scholars about uh, the propriety of these so-called nationwide injunctions, giving a single federal judge the ability to halt uh, a federal program nationwide outside of that judge's district. Both of these lawsuits are attempting to use the availability of this uh, procedural device. And if, if each lawsuit is successful at the first stage, at the trial court, district court level, uh, we will in fact have competing injunctions and most likely the Court of Appeals the Federal Court of Appeals overseeing those two districts, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, would halt the um, effect of the pending resolution. And it's something that one would expect would uh, go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. So what you're saying is that if both lawsuits are successful and get that nationwide injunction, the appeals court would then rescind those injunctions while the process continues going through? Yeah, they would stay those injunctions, one would imagine, uh, pending review. And that's, you know, that is what happens in these cases procedurally. Uh, But I think that both lawsuits also are aimed at, in a sense, making a political statement. You've got the plaintiffs in the Texas case seeking to essentially ban the use of this medication. And it's almost as if this is a response to that, the the lawsuit that was recently filed in the federal court in Washington. Would it be surprising to you if this case did not make it to the U.S. Supreme Court, especially given what we know about how they tend to take up cases that have, you know, sort of competing lower court rulings? Well, it it would definitely surprise me if uh, if the scenario played out in this way, if the uh, federal district judge in Texas granted the relief that the plaintiffs are seeking and it goes up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and that court affirmed so that you have, you know, a, 
potentially a nationwide injunction out there banning the use of the drug. Right. And if the if the district court in Washington granted the relief the plaintiffs are seeking and it went to the Ninth Circuit, which is often viewed uh, as a so-called liberal court of appeals, if it affirmed that ruling, you the U.S. Supreme Court would basically have to take the case. So I just want to clarify what you're saying, though, because there's a lot of folks who are really worried, I think, and based on what you said, perhaps rightly so, that this judge in Texas, if he agrees with the plaintiffs and issues a nationwide injunction that people would immediately lose access to this drug. But what you're saying is that that might kind of be short-lived if the Washington case is also successful and the appeals courts, when they review it, decide, okay, we're going to stay these injunctions, at least temporarily, um, so the drug would then become available again, at least for a short period, yes? I think that's right. I think what you'll Assuming that that scenario plays out, there would be an application for an emergency stay on appeal so that I I don't believe that we will see a nationwide injunction immediately going into effect. The plaintiff's lawyers on, uh, well, the defense counsel in the Texas case and in the in the Washington case, on either side, whoever's opposing that injunction, if it's issued, is going to take it up to uh, the Court of Appeals and get an emergency stay. I So I, th- I think, I mean, my prediction would be that the status quo will be maintained and um, the judge in Texas is expected to rule any day. Uh, that's going to be a much tighter timeline than what we see playing out since the complaint was just filed in the uh, federal court in Washington. I mean, they are anticipating that it could be this week, for example, briefing uh, just completed uh, last last week. So it, it may be that that injunction would, would be effective for, if he issues it, um, for a short period of time before an emergency stay is obtained. But I, I think that we'll see the court, the, the lawyers procedurally maintaining the status quo while this uh, really, really important legal question is resolved. All right. That is Barbara Atwood with the University of Arizona Rogers College of Law. Barbara, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Take care. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, Arizona citrus season is upon us. Well, I mean, I'm originally from here. I remember growing up, it's like fourth grade when they teach you the five C's and citrus is one of them. Um, but I feel like part of my job, not just as a chef, but as somebody that's from here is showcasing what we have in Arizona. We'll hear from a top Arizona chef about everything from tangelos to yuzu to sour oranges. But first, when the Senate Committee on Director Nominations recommended the full chamber reject Governor Hobbs' nominee to lead the State Department of Health Services, GOP members cited Dr. Teresa Cullen's record in Pima County during the pandemic as a big reason why. When the full Senate, in fact, voted against Cullen's nomination, leadership sent out a press release calling her a medical tyrant. But my next guest believes public officials should generally be given a pass when it comes to actions they recommended or took to deal with COVID-19. Bob Robb is a Substack writer, and he joins me. And Bob, it sounds like your thesis here is that we shouldn't hold it against people who were in public office for the decisions they made during the pandemic. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, It is. In in the context, 
for it was the uh, rejection of uh, Dr. Cullen's uh, nomination for the Department of Health Services uh, because the um, Republicans in the legislature disagreed with her approach, which basically was a lockdown and mask mandate uh, approach. Uh, and I both had previously written that I thought policy disagreements were an inappropriate basis for rejecting an executive branch nominee. Uh, but in this one, I thought in particular, we ought not be holding the position that people in authority took in good faith uh, in dealing with COVID since it was so novel and we still don't know what the right approach would have been. And I said that despite the fact that I took almost exactly the opposite position uh, from Dr. Cullen uh, in terms of what we should have done from the get-go. And, and I don't have confidence that mine was the right approach. I don't have confidence that hers were the wrong approach. And anyone who professes that confidence, I think, is showing unwarranted uh, insight into something that remains something that we don't fully understand. So in your mind, was it a sense of we're kind of flying blind here? Like we don't know, as you said, we've not seen this virus before. We don't know how it's going to act. We don't know how it's going to mutate. We don't know what's going to happen. So people were kind of trying to do the best they could with the information they had at the time. And looking back, hindsight being 2020, as we all know, we can't hold it against people because, you know, they were doing the best they could. There's that. But I also think there's an added area an added layer of uncertainty, which is we still don't know in retrospect what would have been uh, the right approach. So given the fact that we often evaluate public officials based on past performance and COVID for a lot of public officials, not just Dr. Cullen, not just Governor Ducey, but for a lot of public officials was a really defining time in their times in office. How should we evaluate their performance and maybe their decision-making, their intuition, their, I don't know, like just generally their performance, given your argument that we shouldn't necessarily hold their COVID decisions against them? I think you judge them on uh, whether they were acting in good faith. Um, I think there were some people who uh, wanted to lift the restrictions earlier, um, who uh, were motivated by conspiracy theories with respect to what these restrictions and what a vaccine would do and uh, other things that, that I wouldn't describe as acting in good faith. Likewise, I think that there were people who advocated uh, lockdowns and mass mandates from a sense of control and an unwillingness to revise their views as we learned more about the disease and uh, as we've develop new tools uh, to deal with it. Um, so I think you judge them by whether you think that they acted in good faith based upon the information that was available. Uh, in my judgment, most of the people who were in a position of authority passed that test. I wonder if that's maybe a metric that we should be using for more areas of public policy, not just how officials responded to COVID, but other things that they have done while in office, you know, you can agree or disagree with the policy, but maybe take a look at were they doing it in good faith or were they doing it for some other nefarious reason? I, I think that's always a useful point of evaluation. And I've always respected people um, with whom I disagreed politically, uh, who I thought acted in good faith. However, I do think 
on virtually all matters of public policy, we know enough at the time. And particularly, we know enough in retrospect as we see the way the policies evolve uh, to be willing to be more judgmental uh, about the behavior of our public officials. It is the fact that there was so much unknown at the time that these people had to make their decisions and still so much unknown uh, that is why I'm suggesting on this particular issue, let's declare an amnesty for all those who in positions of authority acted in good faith at the time that they were making decisions, which were mostly stabs in the dark. Well, and it's interesting because as you write about Dr. Cullen, she was qualified certainly to run the Department of Health Services based on her experience and based on on her background. And there's been some consternation among some in, in politics that for Governor Hobbs now, whoever she nominates, that it will be their, what they did during COVID, their, the policies that they advocated or enacted or anything that will be judged by this committee, that like it would be easier if you could find somebody who just wasn't around during COVID. But that's almost an impossibility in the world of public health. And it will be difficult to find someone who's qualified professionally uh, who didn't take the position that Dr. Cullen took. Uh, with respect to how COVID should be managed uh, at the time she was making those decisions. Uh, And that gets into my other objection to what's occurring, which is uh, this rejecting executive branch nominees because of policy disagreements is an improper exercise of the confirmation authority uh, that's granted to the legislature. It's borrowed from what exists, the system that the federal checks and balance system that exists at the federal level. Uh, And uh, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 76 discussed the appropriate and by implication the inappropriate use of the authority. And and he said that the rejection of an executive branch nominee should be rare uh, and said, said that it existed in order to keep unfit characters, that's his term, unfit characters, uh, from being appointed. In the modern context of what he would mean by unfit characters, it, it would be patronage appointments of people who were mm-hmm. manifestly unqualified for the position. Well, none of the nominees that are under fire uh, by this special legislative committee are unfit characters uh, in the sense that uh, Hamilton meant it. Uh, The issue of what policy ought to emanate from the executive branch was decided in the gubernatorial election when when the voters elected Katie Hobbs. And she, in my judgment, under our system of checks and balances, should have the right to staff her administration with people of her choosing – provided they are qualified for the position. And clearly, Dr. Cullen was eminently qualified for the position. Do you have any measure of confidence that people will take your advice and look at whether somebody was acting in good faith or not versus the actual policy decision they made because of COVID? I do not, um, regretfully. Uh, It has become a cultural dividing line. And I have zero confidence uh, that my hopefully (laughs) well-offered advice will be taken to say, let's move on to other issues. Let's provide an amnesty on this particular issue. Spitting into the wind a little bit. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) All right. That is Bob Robb, Substack writer. Bob, nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Great to be on your show. 
Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Arizona and the six other Colorado River Basin states are trying to figure out a plan to conserve more of the river's dwindling water supplies. At the same time, there are efforts to find more sources of water, including the possibility of building a desalination plant on the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. But my next guest says there are easier and more cost-effective solutions to deal with the ongoing water crisis. Brian Leonard is an associate professor in ASU School of Sustainability and studies the economics of natural resources and environmental problems. And he advocates looking at how water is priced and specifically moving to a more market-based system to buy and sell it. He joins me to talk more about this. And Brian, if water were to be priced based on the market, how might that change the situation we're currently in? Yeah, so I think it would help us better understand kind of as a society what the highest valued use of our scarce water is. So when you don't have prices for an asset or for a resource, then it's kind of hard to know whether it's better to use it in one particular use or another. And so in the in the case of water, it can be very difficult to transfer water from, say, agriculture to another use. And so that results in these big price differences between what like a city would have to pay uh, for their water supply versus the, the cost facing many farmers. Uh, and so then we, we don't have this idea that price or that water is flowing, quote unquote, to its highest valued use as reflected by prices. So in your mind, what would be the best way to do that? Because obviously water is different than a lot of other goods in the sense that like you cannot live without it so you can't really deprive people of it so like what's the the best most equitable way and maybe the most efficient way to make a a system like that work yeah so one of the things that uh, i've recently proposed is something called a reverse auction uh, which sounds very scary and technical but it's really quite simple um Anybody who wants to sell water would basically put forward kind of a a bid or a plan that would say, I would be willing to provide X amount of water at price Y. And so basically it would let the sellers of water, those that are currently using it, uh, in many cases, that's probably likely to be farmers or irrigation districts, kind of dictate the terms on which they would transfer some of that water, probably not all of it, but some of it to different uses, uh, whether that's the city of Phoenix or some other metropolitan area. Uh, It really lets the farmers kind of set the terms and avoids, you know, what could be pretty drastic kind of cuts and and top-down directives on who has to cut back their water use in the future if we continue to run out of water. Would that mean that cities, for example, might end up paying more for their water than what they're paying now? Ultimately, it would probably mean that they would pay less. Um, I'm just going to use totally made up numbers, but let's say it's it's costing a city, you know, four or five hundred dollars an acre foot, maybe six hundred dollars an acre foot. Again, made up numbers to get more water supply, whether that's by paying people to cut back or desalinating or something like that. It'd be much more expensive if they were desalinating. Right. But maybe farmers are only earning two hundred dollars an acre foot or three hundred dollars an acre foot by growing their crops. Well, then there's a wide range of numbers kind of between two or 300 and five or 600, where it would be a win-win. It'd be cheaper for the city to buy the water from the farmer than to get it somewhere else. And the farmer could actually make more money selling their water to the city or leasing their water to the city on a temporary basis than by growing whatever crop they were growing before. So does that result in less overall water being used or is it just sort of shifting around where the, the current amount of water is being used? So I guess that sort of depends how it goes, and it kind of depends on what you think the alternative options are. So 
in some sense, it depends on who's buying that water. You know, it could be going directly from a farmer to the city. The other thing, you know, sort of what we advocated in our article was in the context of the the sort of cutbacks that the Bureau of Reclamation is trying to achieve on the Colorado River Basin. And so in that case, it would be a reduction in overall water use. Like farmers would submit these these bids and do this reverse auction with the Bureau of Reclamation. The Bureau would pick sort of the best bids in their viewpoint uh, and then pay those farmers. And then that would be a reduction in total water use. So do you see these reverse auctions as the answer or do you see them as sort of part of the answer to dealing with dwindling water supplies in the West? I I would say they're a tool in the toolkit. Uh, I'd say they're part of the answer. How realistic do you think it is that this could happen as it relates to water? So uh, if you had asked me that six months ago, I would have said I would have been a little bit more pessimistic. But honestly, the uh, many of the plans that the Bureau of Reclamation has put forward sort of to try to hit these reductions are kind of 90 percent of the way there. They, they basically put out a price and said, here's what we will pay you to reduce your water use. Now you must submit sort of plans for what actions you're going to take to to get those reductions. And so really what what I'm proposing or what we've proposed, what some other economists have proposed is just kind of a slight tweak on that, which is that instead of dictating the price, the Bureau of Reclamation should also let sort of irrigation districts or individual users propose a price. Assuming that that, that was to happen, I mean, how big of a, a shift would it be for farmers, irrigation districts, other users, and just in terms of sort of like the culture of water use and sort of the tradition of how folks have used it and how they paid for it in the past? Like, is this, would this be a big shift for them to adjust to to a new program like that? I I think so. I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is is kind of the reality that we face in the Colorado River Basin with a a structural kind of over allocation. You know, there's more, (laughs) there are more rights to Colorado River water than there is water in the river in any given year. And so I think some sort of dramatic change is coming and the bureau has definitely indicated that these cuts have to come from somewhere and so i think for me at least the appeal of of a market-based approach more broadly and and perhaps a reverse auction approach in particular is that it it lets farmers at least have a say in what those reductions are going to look like as opposed to being told by the bureau hey guess what you don't get any water anymore uh, or something like that and it compensates them right you know, they're getting a payment. I think one of the really important questions around that is how to compensate or how to make sure that that compensation is sort of shared by other stakeholders in the community who maybe aren't the ones who hold water rights. So, you know, laborers, input suppliers, output processors, all these people are going to be affected if there's like a reduction in agriculture, but they don't necessarily get a payment if a farmer or an irrigation district sells their water. And so I think thinking through kind of the broader community impacts is going to be really important. A lot of people really want to focus on technological solutions, whether it's desalination or direct potable reuse. And I think, you know, maybe there's a role for some of those technologies. But one thing that I always come back to is that, you know, the institutions that we currently have for allocating water are old. They're they're from the 19th century. And there's a lot of room for improvement in those institutions. There's a lot of inefficiencies in the current system. And the cost of kind of moving water around, reallocating the water we already have, you think about it being kind of like a leaky bucket bucket and plugging those leaks, 
it's much more efficient, much more cost effective to do that than to, to build some of these new technologies like desalination that are still, you know, maybe an order of magnitude more costly than say leasing water from a farmer. And so for me, as we think about kind of water security in the future, there's really big gains to be had from fixing the institutions before we, you know, try to solve the problem by just creating new supplies of water. All right. That is Brian Leonard, an associate professor in ASU School of Sustainability. Brian, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Citrus season here in Arizona is a sweet one, or maybe a sour one. But all I know is as soon as I smell the first whiff of orange blossoms in the air, I can't wait for the piles of citrus that will soon fall from the trees, fill shopping bags in the break room, and lighten up restaurant menus across the valley. And our next guest is an expert in that realm. Charlene Badman is one of Arizona's most celebrated chefs. As chef and co-owner of Scottsdale's F&B. She brought home the James Beard Award for Best Chef Southwest to Arizona in 2019. She's also behind the Blue Watermelon Project, which works with school-age kids to rethink their relationship with food. And she is crazy about Arizona citrus, even the kinds you think you can't eat. I went down to her kitchen recently to get a taste of what she's working with this citrus season. We have some beautiful yuzus. Um, this is kind of really definitely the last of the season because yuzu starts um, coming out in the summer. Um, McClendon will have it like in, in August or so. They'll be green and then they start to turn uh, yellow. And that's about that's what we see now. And yuzu is just what we use, just the outside of it. Uh, we have some tangelos and these just came today from our farmer at La Campagna. Uh, navel oranges. Uh, lemons from a friend that just dropped them off. She dropped off 13 crates uh, just from one tree. One of my favorites, kids love this one, the blood orange. The color's been really amazing because we've had, I think, really cold weather and that's been helpful. There's like a sweet spot between your, your citrus freezing and then also the citrus really developing great flavor and color on the outside. Meyer lemons, um, these start around November. I love these so much. Uh, Really, too, because I'm able to, I put them in boxes and ship them to my friends back east because they uh, never get to see something like this. When I lived in New York, I would go to Dina DeLuca. I'd check out the citrus they had there in particular, like the Meyer lemon. They were so small, just like these really teeny, they look like limes to me. So when I'm able to send these, uh, my friends are just in shock. It was also like five bucks. Um, uh, tangerines, uh, these are really delicious. We use these a lot of times with our kids in at Blue Watermelon Project. We use them for mindfulness because they're familiar with them. They kind of look like a cutie that they would see at the store and you can do a lot of scratch and sniff and, and also count how many are in there. Are there seeds? Uh, grapefruits, love these. Probably the longest of the season. I've had farmers bring these to me in June when I'm like, okay, I have enough. This is, this is all I can take. And then the sour orange, season kind of ending on these. I love to use these in marinades. We have it on a marinade right now uh, with our pork. Uh, I also like to use it. We made a koju one time, which is like a fermented citrus base, usually made with yuzu, but we did it with the sour orange. It has chilies and salt, and you let it ferment, and it's a paste. Uh, Really delicious that we put like in aiolis, and gives us gives us salty, gives us spicy, gives that citrusy sort of thing all in one package. 
sour oranges are interesting, right? Because I think they have a bad reputation. They're like a failure. Like nobody knows what to do with them when you have a sour orange tree. Absolutely. I remember growing up, my parents, and they're still in the same house they brought me home in, but we have two sour oranges in the front, and now they're hedges, and that's a lot of times what people make out of them. Um, But we don't know what to do with them here. They're often uh, used as kind of called the ornamental orange, and I used to pull them off and throw them at my brother and sister. (laughs) That was what I did with them. And now, I mean, I really do love them. They can be a great marmalade. They can be used to tenderize. They can be made into that koju. Um, It has a very strong rootstock. It's actually used most of the time to graft onto citrus that somebody would actually want, like a lemon or a grapefruit or something like that. You can also find out, and this happened in my my yard, um, I had two sour orange trees, but I could see that it was something actually before that, and that had died, and basically the sour orange had taken over. But you use it now. Like, these become really useful if you if you think about it in the right way, it sounds like. They do. I, I will have guests that will bring uh, a bag of sour oranges or a couple farmers that bring sour oranges over to us, and we juice them and freeze them just like we do a, quite a bit of our citrus so that we can have it after the season is over or even during. But um, right now we have it marinating a pork dish. We... We use it kind of to tenderize this pork shank. It's a, it's a tough cut. It's going to be braised. So we're going to uh, take the sour orange and we're going to use that as the, the marinade, the tenderizer. And then we're also going to uh, have it be part of the flavor. That sourness countering uh, a rich piece of meat like that uh, is going to bring balance to the dish. It works well with kind of fatty stuff, it sounds like. Yeah. And then uh, definitely my favorite, though, for across the board for all citrus is using it in a salad. I went as soon as citrus season kind of starts, I mean the yuzu's here in the summer so that's always like a nice little pop but when things really start going about November uh, and people start bringing them in I'm so excited to be able to get this on a plate especially for me on a salad. I think a lot of chefs like making a salad with them because you have such a great vehicle with something that's sweet and it's sour, might have some bitterness and then you can add cheese which is going to add a fat or add a nut to add some crunch to it. Uh, the greens that we have coming out of Arizona right now are super gorgeous. So maybe some peppery arugula, uh, chili pepper goes really well with it. It can handle some heat because of the sweet, and uh, there's possibilities that are endless. Yeah. So it's, tell me a little bit about the sourcing of this, because it sounds like people just kind of give this stuff to you. But also, you work, I know, with farms all over the state. Absolutely. People do bring them by, and I will take them for sure. Regulars will literally say, sure, I left you a bag of Meyer lemons on the table, because they even know where to, the secret entrance to go to the prep room. Um, Bob McClendon, that's how he started with citrus. He's known for citrus. It's his logo. Uh, he has such beautiful citrus this year. The, the blood oranges are just fantastic. His Meyer lemons are the ones I ship to all my friends. La Campagna, she she grew these beautiful tangelos that we have today. And we simply take something like this. Um, prep cooks are going to juice it. And then we're going to put it into a, a cordial glass and serve it to a guest. And I always think it's funny. And we've even just given the guests this just like the way it is. And, and Like an entire tangelo on a plate? Uh, <laughs> Bob's tangelo in all of his glory. Lauren's tangelo in all of his glory. Yeah, yeah. And it comes out in a bowl. And they're like, it's just a tangelo. And it's like, yeah. And then they're like, but they didn't even bother peeling it for us. <laughs> and I'm like, but that's that's the best part. Start, go ahead and peel it. Uh, do you need, want a knife to maybe get it started if you're afraid about getting it into maybe your fingernail or something? But the aromatherapy that happens, like even for us, I can smell that the guest has just peeled this tangelo out there. And like everybody's smiling and they're happy. And it's like part of the experience is that you just peel this beautiful tangelo that's perfectly ripe. Now you get to eat it. Yeah, I didn't do the work for you, um, but 
but you got to enjoy that experience, you know, and, and I hope they get it. We do it like as a juice as well as, as a vegan or vegetarian option for guests. And it can be like the best drink, though, that, you know, a shot of Tangela. If you want to add some vodka to it, go right ahead. <laughs> you know, this is it just shows how wonderful it is and how how great this product, you know, that something that we're growing in Arizona. And that's what I'm trying to do here at F&B is, is showcase what the beauty that we have, the bounty that we have. I mean, that's, that's what's so cool about this, right? Like, because it's freezing cold in half the country right now. But right here, like, it's it's citrus season. It's beautiful that this blooms and becomes ripe for us in the winter. How do you see the citrus as, like, an Arizona emblem? Well, I mean, I'm originally from here. I remember growing up. It's, like, fourth grade when they teach you the five C's, and citrus is one of them. Um, but I feel like part of my job, not just as a chef, but as somebody that's from here, is showcasing what we have in Arizona, being able to say, and I say this even to children, I say, you know, we're sitting outside, maybe not today, but we're sitting outside and, and we're wearing shorts or we're wearing short sleeves. And the rest of the country has either a snow day or they're inside and they can't play. And you're eating all this beautiful citrus and you're getting to enjoy it. We do a lot of things where we'll take four different kinds of, of grapefruits and maybe three different types of oranges and two different limes and a couple different lemons and have them do some compare and contrast. And then I always try to remind them, do you know how special this is? Do you know how special where we live is you are you understanding that because everywhere else does not have something like this growing does not have this beautifulness maybe in your own backyard get a couple nods we'll see <laughs> you got to try at least you got to try okay so we have some sliced up Meyer lemons here and this is something you're making for tonight right yes this is a is going to end up being a relish it's something that actually Krista Robertson at uh, when she had Rancho Pino um, taught us how to do and you slice the lemons and these are Meyer lemons because they're really nice and floral you're going to slice them you're going to make sure there aren't the seeds that have been removed out of them they're sliced on a slicer and you just lay them out kind of like I kind of think like as a picture frame going all the way around but they're overlapping these are so thinly sliced they're beautiful very thin because you want them to cook really quickly and then we're going to lay them all out and roast them in the oven and they'll start to roast on the outside much faster than obviously the middle uh, and we'll start taking them off kind of going from the outside all the way to the end until they're completely roasted all the way all the way through. We'll then take them and chop them up, uh, add a little bit of uh, some olive oil and then whatever herb we want to do. And right now we're just doing simple parsley and we add in to order uh, just so they don't change the color of it, some fava beans, which are in season. And this is the, the little topping, the little hat we put over the top of our braised chicken that we're doing uh, that has some fennel and it just makes everything sing. The, when these roast, um, it intensifies that lemon flavor, kind of maybe softens up a little bit of the bitterness because we are using the whole thing. And then also, but keeps goes ahead and keeps that sweetness and that the acid from it as well. So it's going to brighten up a dish that during this time of the year with braises and things like that might be a little bit more kind of fatty and succulent. And then it'll bring again balance to it because it has that, that acid and just tasty and really showcases what we have here in Arizona. You've got this whole tray of thinly sliced Meyer lemons here. What are we doing next? So what I have is I've got the tray. It's all just kind of circled around. And then we have a little bit of salt we're going to sprinkle on top. And after the salt is on there, then we add a little bit of sugar, about equal amounts, honestly. Yeah. So you will, I mean, you saw how thin they are, so it's not a ton of salt. Otherwise, you'd end up with something over season. And you also don't want it to caramelize too quickly either. So just a nice sprinkle over the top. And then the olive oil goes over the top of that. Okay, so this is done. This is going in the oven for, for how long? Until it's crispy? 
At this point, it, it's going to be, you know, we go higher heat, so maybe 375 in the convection with the air, you know, that air circulating, so it'll be crispy pretty quickly. And it takes, like I said, the outside is going to happen first, and then you're just going to kind of keep going into like a, a circle into the center as they kind of crisp up and pile them up. Start at about 10 minutes, and then you start like five minutes, and then it's like three minutes. Every three minutes, you're literally checking it. You're standing there because it's just a little bit more and a little bit more. And if you walk away, you will burn them, which is a lot of a lot of work in this to not have that happen. So, The beautiful uses of Arizona citrus, Chef Charlene Badman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lauren, do you get to uh, get any tastes while you're down there? I didn't try any. <laughs> Man, they are really pretty, though. And it smelled great. She was, I mean, she was like making it for real service. Like, I can't mess with that. I guess that's fair. You can almost, <laughs> I, I mean, you can almost smell it here in the studio from oh, all the way down in her restaurant. The, it's the best. It sounded very tasty. It was beautiful. And every single time I, I get the Arizona citrus season coming, I, I love it. It's my favorite, <laughs> favorite time of year. It's not just for cooking. You can bake, juice, all sorts of good stuff. With Lots it, right? of things with it. And on that note, that'll do it for today's Tuesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us again tomorrow morning when we have much more starting at 9 a.m. as always. And remember, you can always join in the conversation to, with Mark and I here on Twitter. I am at Lauren Gilger. Mark is at Mark W. Brody. And now the show is on Instagram. Our handle is KJZZ, the show. The show was produced by Rich Copeland, Sativa Peterson, Nick Sanchez, Amber Victoria Singer, and Nate Boyle, as well as Bruce Drummond. Sky Shout is our digital editor. Chad Snow is our news director. The show was created by John Hoban, and our executive producer is Amy Silverman. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us today. Have a good one. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.